Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. I want to start actually with some bad news. I've got bad news. I've got worse news. I have even worse news. And I have still worse news than that for Bronco fans. First, the bad news. You just lost to Kansas City 27-23. The worst news. You were jammed by the refs. The even worse news. Patrick Mahomes played his worst game of the season. And you still lost. And the still worse news. Patrick Mahomes is a guy you're going to have to deal with twice a year for the next 10 to 15 years. In other words, you better get used to it. You better deal with that. Because... For a Chiefs fan or a neutral, there was a lot to like last night. But for a Broncos fan, that was the worst. I mean, yes, they lost. But to add insult to injury, to dump salt into that wound, on third and seven, on the game-winning drive, Patrick Mahomes hits Demetrius Harris for 35 yards. But according to Bronco players, the play should have never even happened, and the refs know it. The play clock appeared to hit zero before that ball was snapped and before the Chiefs picked up the first down. After the game, Brandon Marshall said, quote, It definitely was at zero. The replay showed that. The ref told us that the ref that was supposed to be watching it just missed it. He told us that. The ref told us the guy that was supposed to be watching the clock just missed it. So maybe he got caught up in watching the game because it was a good game, but... You've got to do your job. Come on. That was huge. That was big. End quote. That was big. That was huge. But you know what was even bigger? You know why you lost that game? Patrick Mahomes. I mean, it would have been so much easier and probably felt a hell of a lot better just to pin that on the ref. But the Broncos are not doing that because the Broncos know the truth. They know what they saw. And they know what they're about to see for a long, long time. And he served it up even before the game started. Did you see Mahomes getting loose? You knew it was coming. Did you see that clip of him throwing the football during warm-ups? There's thinking that this guy's got a big arm. And if you're watching on CBS Sports Network, check this guy. There's thinking this dude's got a big arm, and then they're seeing him just casually flip footballs from the goal line into the stratosphere. I mean, this guy could take down the sun and the moon with a single throw. He really does have that arm to throw a football over the mountains. And it's not like Denver didn't show up with a great game plan because they did. They threw everything they had at this guy. They mixed up their coverages. They got pressure. They chased him out of the pocket. And they had a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. And it was still not enough. It was enough to force him into his worst statistical game of the year. It was enough to get him off his spot, but it still wasn't enough because according to ESPN stats, he threw for 192 yards out of the pocket last night, the most in the last decade. That's how freaky this guy is. And when he had to have it, when he needed it the most, he was at his very best. 13 of 16 in the fourth quarter. Two touchdown drives. Every time he and the Chiefs should have been dead, he found a way to keep them alive. Like being chased out of the pocket on third down with over three minutes to go. You don't convert that, Denver probably wins that game. Instead, he stabbed them right in the heart. Mahomes, arms out, stretch, shotgun, snap. He's being pressured, runs to the far side. He throws a left-handed pass. It's caught by Hill. It's caught by Hill on a short pass at the 50 and runs out of bounds. 
for a first down. He pulls a Houdini. What a play by Mahomes. Nice job, Kenny Stabler. You see this guy? You see this guy switching hands and throwing a left-handed dime. Maybe not a dime, but he got it there, didn't he? My thanks to Westwood one. That's Pat Mahomes, right-handed quarterback, picking up a third down with a left-handed pass with Von Miller chasing hard and then bringing him down. Like on the one hand, it's absolutely impressive and unbelievable. And then on the other hand, it's totally believable. It's expected. I mean, were you shocked when you saw that? Knowing this guy, I wasn't. I mean, whatever. Wake me up when this guy can throw a pass telepathically. Then I'll be impressed. Right now, there's nothing this guy can do that would not surprise me. The Chiefs picked up that first down. They committed a couple of penalties. Suddenly, it's second and 30. The drive should have been over at that point. With most quarterbacks, it would have been over at that point. But Mahomes turned a nightmare second down into a manageable third down with a 23-yard completion. So, the left-handed pass might have been the one to get on all the highlight reels. But the conversion was the one that broke Denver. According to The Athletic, Chris Harris Jr. was repeating second and 30, second and 30 as he left the field at the end of the game. Because this is what Mahomes does to you. He takes one of the best corners in the game and leaves him shaking his damn head. You got to do a whole lot to impress Chris Harris Jr. So this guy, if he's walking off the field, repeating the line over and over again, then you've done it. You've scarred one of the best players in the game. And Denver still had a chance to win it, but they missed on a wide-open receiver, and then they ran a hook and ladder, but the damage had already been done. Plenty of chances to win that game, and they couldn't do it. Not because of the refs, not because of their own mistakes, but because of Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes has his worst statistical game of the year, and he still rips your heart out. Better get used to it, Bronco fans, because he's only 23 which means, barring something terrible, he will be ruining your weekends for a long, long time. It'll be 2030 or 2035, and he will still be carving up your secondary and leaving your DBs speechless, shaking their damn heads when they walk off the field. He pulls a Houdini! Linebacker Blake Martinez is my guest. Blake, great to have you on the show. Good morning. How are you? Good. I'm glad to be on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you, Blake. Thanks so much. So you had a sack and the defense as a whole sacked Josh Allen seven times in Sunday's 22-0 win over the Bills. Buffalo gave Minnesota a lot of problems. So what was your mindset, Blake, going into that game Sunday? No, yeah. I mean, we looked over the, the tape from the Minnesota Bills game the week prior and, and looked at what he was able to do with his athleticism, extending plays, and we just kind of as a defense knew, hey, every single play we have our given job responsibility. Um, and as long as we can do that, we can contain them and, and get them on the ground as long as our, our coverage units are doing well. And, and you saw that on Sunday. Linebacker Blake Martinez of the Packers joining us. That was Green Bay's first shutout, actually, since 2010. Look, I know you're never going to say that you played a perfect game and you're always going to be looking to learn and improve upon something. But do you feel like that was a performance where everything did click for the defense? Oh, yeah, and I think we kind of looked at the prior three games where we were inconsistent on multiple fronts, whether it was first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, overtime. Um, and going into this game, we just knew, hey, we're going to start fast. And as the game progressed, we, we kind of started clicking as a defense and, and got that shutout at the end of the game. Yeah, I thought it was interesting what Aaron Rodgers said afterwards. He said after the game, quote, we were championship defense level 
and non-playoff team level on offense, end quote. You know, the quarterback's always going to be his toughest critic, his own toughest critic. What did you make of that statement when you heard that? No, yeah, I mean, you obviously, for me, I take the, the positives of it. Um, saying that we're a championship-level defense, obviously you want to keep that going. You don't want to be a, a one-week wonder. Um, and then, obviously, on the offensive side, you kind of just you leave it to them. Um, obviously, 12 has the capabilities of doing amazing things and, and correcting a lot of things as we, as we move forward in the season. Blake Martinez joining us. So you're 2-1-1 and one through the first four games. I mean, if you had to say, you're probably still learning about yourselves and about what the team is. If you had to determine or say what the team's identity at this point is, do you have a sense of how good this team is and what its upside is? No, yeah, I think we have a lot of upside. I think there's a lot of potential for us. Um, you saw that last game. I think our big kind of characteristic is just our, our play style and our energy out there. I think every single one of us, no matter who it is, um, and I speak for the defensive side, whoever's out there is going to give it their all. And you know that when we are out there, um, people are going to do the right things at the right time, and, and we have a lot of trust within each other. Well, so you've got a new defense with Mike Pettin. How would you describe his approach to defense, and what's it like playing in that scheme now? Oh, this scheme is, is awesome. It's a, it's a middle linebacker's dream. Um, I have a lot of freedom pre-snap to kind of get us into checks and, and just on a stunts things to allow us to kind of have that that positive on a play and get those negative plays in the backfield tfl sacks um, those types of things to to allow our back end to not have to cover so long blake martinez my guest you know blake i mentioned your stats last year you're already in your third season but you're already being looked to as a veteran and a team leader how do you approach that role and what's that feel like no yeah and it was uh, it was interesting this year i think after Jake Ryan went out, we had me and six other rookies in our room, and it came to the point where, where I was the, the guy with the, the wisdom, as you'd say, and guys started coming to me asking me questions. Hey, Blake, what do you see on this? How did you play this? Um, and it was, it was pretty cool, and I, I used that as a, a good stepping point for me um, going into the season and, and just kind of carrying it through uh, as we go through these 16 games. Packers linebacker Blake Martinez joins me for a few more moments. And, of course, one of the biggest talking points around the league from a defensive standpoint has been the enforcement of the roughing the passer penalties. Clay Matthews, your teammate, has been on the receiving end of multiple flags. It seems like every time he's flagged, he's trying to be as safe as he possibly can be. So what do you make of the rule and the way it's being enforced? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting rule. Um, I think, obviously, it's more... Pass rush guys, obviously, um, I'm starting to get into that, which I like. Uh, but I think overall, they're doing better. I know last game there was moments where we hit the quarterback and refs would come up to us and say, hey, great hit, that's exactly what we're looking for. Um, so we're starting to get more and more examples of what they want. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be interesting how it keeps growing and, and whether it's going to decrease um, the, the chances of getting called um, or – I don't know, protecting uh, defensive players from having that crucial crucial call late in the game to, to either end the game that you don't want it to be or, or prolong the game um, into, into overtime like we've seen. I think that's fair. I think you're right. So bottom line, do you have a sense right now of what will and will not draw a flag these days? Are you clear on that? No, yeah. I think uh, it's starting to get more clear. Um, I think there's still going to be more times where you have to you have to see and understand what certain refs are going to call and what certain refs aren't going to call. Um, but for the most part, I think our mentality is, hey, hit the quarterback and roll to the side and bring him down with you, um, whether he's throwing the ball or he has the ball in his hands. 
Blake, I think most fans look at you and other professional athletes and forget that there's a whole world. I think you have a whole life off the field as well. You have a whole life when you leave the facility. And this offseason, you celebrated the arrival of your daughter, Kinsley. What was it like to welcome her into the world? And what have the first few weeks been like? Oh, it, was a, it was an unreal experience. I mean, you bring it up and I get chills. Um, it's, it's, a, it's crazy. You grow up so fast when she entered this world. And the weeks have been, have been interesting is the best way I could put it. Um, I mean, she, she poops, eats, and sleeps um, and cries. Cries a lot. Um, but it's always worth it whenever you get her to smile. And she's starting to smile and talk. And it's just, it's just the greatest thing. Um, that I've been a part of. Good for you. It is the greatest thing, honestly. Now, you're also regarded as one of the best gamers in the NFL. Let me ask you this. How would you first get started playing Dota? Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting story. Um, I was actually relaxing in my dorm. We, I had five other roommates, and I was laying on the ground. All of a sudden, everyone's running into our dorm room. I think we had like 10 guys, and they all set up their laptops and are playing. And I was honestly stretching and and watching film for the next week's game, and all my buddies were like, "Dude, you got to play this game with us!" Like, and I was like, "No, guys, like I'm, I'm not about that. I stopped playing games." And then all of a sudden, one day, I was like, "Okay, I'm just going to test it out." And my buddy made an account for me, and and I was hooked ever since. <laughs> That's funny. You're like not about that life. You have no time for that. And then you wade back in. All right. So and then above and beyond that, you're also a spokesperson for the Vince Lombardi Cancer Foundation, the Packers versus Cancer campaign. What's it mean to be a part of that? Oh, it means everything. Um, when they gave me the opportunity to talk, um, it was just it was awesome to see what they're doing um, and all the things that they're kind of providing for fans and for people to kind of get a part of this this cause and be a part of a, a productive movement to get a hundred percent success rate um, on curing cancer and doing those types of things. I know when we went through the press conference, they talked about how it was 55% and now it's up to 80%. Um, so it's just, it's just awesome to see those types of movements. And I know when you have a organization like the Packers backing something like that, a lot of people are going to start to, kind of step in and, and contribute as well. You know, finally, even as somebody, Blake, as young as you, you go through that, you see that, you've seen and done a lot of things already. We could talk about all the honors you've received over the course of your career. However, is there anything that compares to having a bottle of Tabasco sauce that was bottled for you and is your private stock? Yeah, that was uh, that was probably top five at least. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty cool. I know... I, it was just out of nowhere. I think I was commenting on some other person's tweet and saying how Tabasco and soy sauce is the best thing for sushi. And then all of a sudden I get this DM from Tabasco and says, hey, do you want some Tabasco sauce? I was like, sure. And then next thing I know, it shows up my door. It has Blake Martinez, number 50. It was, it was pretty cool. Hey, Blake, I'm more... Look, I'm more of a Cholula than a Tabasco guy. Maybe. Oh, no. Oh, no. All right, so lay this out for me. Number one, why am I wrong there? And Tabasco and soy sauce for sushi? Yeah, I'm telling you. Okay, so it, I, I can't take the credit for it. So my wife, she did it, and I trust me, I had the same response. I was like, what? Like, why? Right. And then all of a sudden I tried it. If you like spicy food or anything, it literally makes sushi a thousand times better. Dude, I love spicy. I'm just not a big, big Tabasco guy. Were you prior to that? Like, did you like Tabasco already? Yeah, I like Tabasco. Um, but like, like you said, Cholula, I mean, I give you, give you crap for it. But I think it, it all depends on what type of food you're eating. Um, I like Tabasco on, like, breakfast food. I eat Cholula on, like, 
any dinner type food that I want to add spice to. See, I hit Cholula with everything. Well, not everything, but breakfast and dinner. Oh, okay, okay. Now, if you played 162 games and you need to play another to decide the division, you probably do not want a rookie on the mound for game number 163 unless you're the L.A. Dodgers and that rookie is Walker Bueller because Walker Bueller is brass as hell. And no, I'm not really interested in your Ferris nicknames or your Walker Los Angeles Dodger nicknames because this dude is no joke. In the 23rd and biggest start of his major league career, Bueller went huge. I mean, monstrous. Armed with 99 mile per hour heat. A nasty slide piss. Peace. This guy carries a no hitter into the sixth. He allows one hit. He leaves after six and two thirds of shutout ball. I mean, there's a clutch performance, and then there's what that guy did in LA's five to two win that wrapped up a sixth consecutive divisional title. And he was doing it against a Rockies team that is tough as hell. Absolute nails. They had won nine of their last 10 heading into yesterday. They went from being dead in the water to holding that division lead for three days. Colorado's tough, really tough. Walker Bueller is just tougher. He dominated a lineup that had been averaging nearly nine runs per game. He shut them out. He drove in a run on his own. We're talking about a guy who had arm troubles. We're talking about somebody who had Tommy John surgery after only five professional innings. And now he's out there in the biggest game of the season dealing, dealing like that. It's incredible. But don't take my word for it. Ask Clayton Kershaw. Kershaw said, quote, I can't say enough good things about him. You just have to say it behind his back so he doesn't get too big of a head. But it's really a special thing to watch him pitch. His talent level is just, I mean, it's unbelievable. Some of the best stuff I've ever witnessed. (laughs) This is one of the best to ever do it. A guy with some of the best stuff that anybody has ever witnessed saying that the rookie has some of the best stuff he's ever witnessed. But there is having great stuff, and then there's knowing how to use it. And then being able to use it in a situation like that with the division on the line and all the pressure that comes along with it. To pull that off, you need, well, Justin Turner can take it from there. Quote, I don't know if I can say this on air, but a huge set of balls. Uh, Pretty much. That's correct. Bueller does have that. And if you need further proof, check out that 155 ERA in his last 12 starts. Check out the fact. The whole Dodger team has benefited from this, including their manager. Remember Dave Roberts said that the Dodgers would do this? Remember when Dave Roberts, who's been under fire, and people have been suggesting that if he doesn't get it done this year, it may cost him his gig. That Dave Roberts. He called his shot early in the season, and after the game when a reporter reminded him of what he said back in May, Roberts corrected him and said April 29th. You see, this is how good Dave Roberts is. Yes, when you've got the roster that they have, you're expected to win that division. But he said it when they were below 500 and in the middle of a losing streak. They then chased that losing streak with another streak that took them 10 games under 500. And yet here they are, again, NL Western champs. Yeah, I get it. They've got a big payroll. But if it were that easy, everybody would do it. Everybody would just throw money at it. 
Instead, the Dodgers are just the sixth team in history to go from 10 games below 500 to winning their division. And they did it with their closer dealing with a heart issue, their ace dealing with a back issue, and they lost their star shortstop for the season. And they still did it because, like Bueller, they've got talent. And what else? What else, Justin? Quote, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but a huge set of balls. End quote. Of course, it's not enough. It helps. It's not enough. But remember, look, I'm not saying that this is good enough. It's not. This team was not just built to win divisional championships. And here in L.A., it has been way too long since their last World Series. And if this era ends with no World Series rings, it'll be a major disappointment to the Dodgers and this town. But that doesn't mean that six straight divisional titles mean nothing. Hey, listen, it's not a perfect team. They still have questions about the back of the bullpen. And no Dodger fan likes seeing Kenley Jansen give up a pair of bombs in the ninth. But I'm telling you, this team is good. The Dodgers are really nice. They've got arms. They've got bats. And like Justin Turner said, they've got a big sack. Starting with that rook. Starting with that rook. Hey, they're feeling it now. You ask Yasiel Puig. Ask Yasiel Puig how deep of a run this team can make this postseason. We're going for more. Hey, Atlanta, I see you soon, baby. And the next one, Chicago, Colorado, no matter who's going, we're going to beat it. And we're going to the World Series again. And this time, we're going to win the World Series. 2018, the, the, the big party is here in Los Angeles. Hey, you know what? Toes down, baby. No question for him. I winning. Yasiel calling his shot. We are going to the World Series and we are winning. John Morosi. John, good morning. How are you? Jim, I am outstanding, and I'm uh, actually coming to you live from the Dodger Stadium press box, a quiet uh, day after Game 163. And I love the fact that on the back wall of the main area of the press box, it has all the names of the greats that have covered the Dodgers over the years. And my friend, your name is in the very first column. Jim Come on. Rose, there it is. Oh, I love that. That is so nice of you to say, John. Thank you very much for reminding the folks of that. Can I tell you, John, off topic, I had my 50th episode of the Jim Rome podcast, none other than the Penguin, Ron Say, my idol growing up, sat with me in the studio. How about that? Not good. Not bad, that right? That is awesome. Now, Congratulations. That's uh, Ron Say, one of the, one of the great National Leaguers of all time there. That's pretty cool that, that he was in there in studio. That, that's if awesome. not one of the great athletes of all time, John Rossi joining us. All right, John, I love that you're at the stadium right now. In fact, you were there yesterday. You saw Walker Bueller start game 163. This is a guy, John, as you know, who started the season in the minors, and he was then pitching for the division title at the end of the season. What do you make of what you saw from him yesterday? So impressive. And, and Jim, I, I love the fact, as you mentioned, he began the year in the minor leagues. Well, the opening game for the Oklahoma City Dodgers this year in the Pacific Coast League, Walker Buehler started and Max Muncy homered. Mm. And uh, both those things happened yesterday for the Los Angeles Dodgers in game 163 to clinch the division. So uh, it was interesting, Jim, just being in the clubhouse before the game yesterday. And you, know, you can obviously pick up on, on the nonverbals as, as players get ready. And of course, as we both know, you never talk to the pitcher on the day that he pitches. But Walker Bueller, as a, as a rookie, was there in total comfort and calmness uh, there among, among his teammates. You would have thought it was March the 1st before a Cactus League game 
against the Rockies there in, in Glendale, Arizona. He was so calm, and I think he looked that way on the mound. He reminds me so much of a young Justin Verlander. The stuff, the demeanor, the confidence, the expectation of success. Of course, it's easy to believe that you're going to be successful when you throw upwards of 99. I thought his you know, first eight pitches of the game, all fastballs, the slowest of which was 97. So he brought his A stuff. He was in total command. There were a couple times when maybe his location wasn't there, but I think by and large, Jim, a magnificent outing, of course, did not allow a hit until the sixth inning. So I think for him, Walker Buehler, what a great outing that was for him. And certainly uh, they'll have him ready to go in game three of the division series against the Atlanta Braves. John Morosi joining us from Dodger Stadium. John, one quick follow on that and one thought from you. What impressed you more about Buehler or impresses you more about him, his stuff, which is electric, or his mental makeup? I think it's the latter, Jim, and, and, and I'll, I'll explain why. Because we see so much in the course of the game now. There's a lot of guys that have A-level stuff. You, you turn on the baseball game nowadays, and, and it's a surprise if you're not seeing people that are throwing 96, 97, 98 at some point in time in the game. I think what makes Bueller unique is his ability to, to synthesize his best game plan and match it against the opponent's weaknesses. Uh, I, I was told from people that have been around him and involved in player development here that really that he has – welcomed all of the analytic information, all of the scouting information, that he has got the intellect to distill all of that into a very coherent and, and strong game plan where there's not really indecision from him on the mound. I think sometimes nowadays I think some organizations are, are still trying to find the right way, Jim, to integrate the analytics with the scouting information and not overwhelm their young players with too much of it. But Bueller seems to be very much at ease with taking everything in. And I think when you when you pair that that thirsty of a mind that he's got with, with that um, that amazing repertoire on the mound, and you you see outings like what you saw yesterday, which was superior stuff matched with an intellect to process it all. And I think that right now Walker Buehler, of course, a product of Vanderbilt University, I think he's really putting that Vanderbilt education to very good use because he, he is a man in his element there on the mound. No doubt, John Morosi joins us from Dodger Stadium. So, John Clayton Kershaw thanked the Dodgers training staff last night saying in part quote I was not the same guy I was I've learned a lot how to stay healthy maybe not quite as stubborn as I used to be end quote it's a really interesting comment what do you make of it and where is he physically right now well it's a great question Jim and I thought that was really poignant uh, in talking to Clayton after the game yesterday that he brought up the, the training staff and the strength and conditioning coaches because uh, it's still been a challenge for him I and mean, he's it feels like he's been around sometimes you think of him still as a young pitcher. Sometimes you feel like he's been around forever. And, of course, now we've passed now the 10th anniversary of his time in the major leagues. Um, he has been around for a while. And, again, by his own admission, he's not the same guy. I think that he has had to take a different approach, probably in between starts, maybe to ease off the accelerator a little bit and not quite train as hard to throw as much. Uh, he may well be probably – he's probably right now as smart and probably smarter than he's ever been. But I think he's had to learn how to modulate maybe his activity in between starts. So to me, Jim, I, I think he, he is still in a very good place physically and mentally to now get to the playoffs. And maybe in the past, maybe some of the October struggles that he had were because he had pushed it so hard for so long during the regular season. Now he's, he's had some breaks in between uh, because of health reasons in the last couple of years. Perhaps that'll serve him well. Perhaps he'll have his best stuff later on in October this year in comparison to the past. It looks like he's going to start game one. Uh, there's a belief on, on some, some people's parts here in, in L.A. that maybe Bueller has sort of become their, their ace in terms of the actual performance on the mound in recent weeks, and that Clayton um, is maybe now more of a co-ace role 
for Clayton Kershaw, which perhaps, based on where his stuff is right now, Jim, is to his best liking, and it, and is, and it suits him well right now. I think he seems to be very comfortable with where he's at, and Hunjin Ryu has stepped forward as well. I think right now, Jim, he's, he, Clayton Kershaw is probably collectively uh, in as good of a spot as he's been in a while in terms of sharing the burden, and I think having Ryu and Bueller pitching as well as they are really puts him in a very good situation for him now in the playoffs, and, and maybe his own expectations are, are lower just a little bit, and perhaps that's for the best for him, so he's not getting maybe uh, too amped or, or, or uh, too anxious on the mound. Maybe he's actually more comfortable in, in who he is as a pitcher right now, and I think his comments yesterday spoke to that. Well said, John. John Morosi joining us. He's at Dodger Stadium. All right, John, let me get your thoughts on the Brewers. They beat the Cubs in Chicago yesterday. They win the NL Central. This is a team, John, that was five games back on Labor Day, and now they are the NL Central champs. The Brewers may not receive a lot of national love. So for the fans who are about to see them for the first time, what kind of a team are they about to see? Fantastic team that, that Jim right now has, I believe, the NL MVP, Christian Yelich. He is an extraordinary talent, uh, really in all phases of the game. Uh, he's been a triple crown candidate this year. Amazing story, too, of course. His brother, uh, Cameron, just discharged from the Marines honorably, and he went to watch his brother play in, in person for the first time in years over the weekend as he clinches the, the MVP, we think. So an amazing personal story, family story. But just a, a great player, multiple cycles here in the second half of the season. Uh, but their pitching has gotten it done really unheralded. You mentioned the, sort of the, the unheralded quality of, uh, of their roster, and, and Julius Chastain getting the start yesterday – Great outing for him. They rely so much on their bullpen. Josh Hader, uh, Corey Knable has come in and, and pitched so well uh, here in, in recent days as well. So I think that it's a it's a great story. They built this team, I think, in a very collective and, and wise way. A young GM and David Stearns, an outstanding young executive in the game. So I, I think Jim, for so many reasons, they're an easy team to root for. Great fan support there in Milwaukee. They'll be an underdog, I think, in the in the playoffs. Uh, maybe in the first round and certainly in the second round if they make it that far. But I think it's a very good success story for a team. They draw so well there at Miller Park. It's going to be a great postseason atmosphere there in the great city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I think uh, a team that, because of Christian Yelich and, and Lorenzo Kane coming in and bringing that world championship cachet for the Kansas City Royals, I think two outstanding moves that David Stearns made last winter. Two incredible moves. John Morosi joining us for a few more moments. All right, John, what about the Cubs and the Rockies? How do you expect them to rebound from losing yesterday, and how do you see that game going tonight? So, Jim, I, I have to say, you look at the, 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 the matchup on the field, and, and you think about the Cubs, and they're still in their home ballpark. They've got John Lester on the mound. The Rockies had a tough travel day after a, a somewhat of a, a difficult loss here in Los Angeles yesterday. Every reason exists for me to believe that the Cubs win this game. Uh, that being said, I think the Rockies, uh, they, they seem, when I talked to them before the game yesterday here in L.A., very confident, very much at ease, and I think they haven't lost that even after losing the game yesterday. Uh, they're going to bring their bats, and I think that uh, you look at the way that the, I think Mark DeRosa made this point today on MLB Network Television very, very well, that, that, that you think about Kyle Freeland pitching for the Rockies against the Cubs. He is on short rest, Jim, for only the second time in his major league career and the reason why he starts this game, of course, he's been an uh, NL Cy Young candidate, but also the lefty-lefty matchup with Daniel Murphy, the lefty-lefty matchup with Anthony Rizzo as well, and hoping that he'll find a way to get Javier Baez chasing out of the zone. The Rockies did not use their A bullpen pieces yesterday. Sung Kwan Oh, Adam Adovino, Wade Davis. So I think we're going to see a lefty on the mound to start there for Colorado with the righty bullpen behind him. As, as good as this matchup looks like for the Cubs, and I believe they should win this game, 
the Rockies have a lot of reasons to be confident as well. Do not sleep on them. They are tough. I agree with you, John. Everything seems to be pointing towards the Cubs, but I would not sleep on the Rockies. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if they went in there and they did what they had to do. Last thought, you were also in Boston over the weekend for the Yankees-Red Sox series. With the Yankees, they're facing the A's tomorrow in the wildcard game. Because of how good, John, the Red Sox have been this year, it's easy to overlook or forget the fact that the Yankees won 100 games. How do they look to you right now as a team? Well, it's the first time ever that both the Red Sox and Yankees have won 100 games in the same year, which just tells you how, how strong the American League and the American League East in particular has been this year. Um, I, I look at the Yankees. Their lineup, I think, is now coming together. Uh, they, they've got, of course, Judge back now recently, and Didi Gregorius as well, and Aaron Hicks. They've had a lot of health question marks that have been answered in the affirmative here the last couple of days. However, I'm a little surprised. The news today, Luis Severino getting the start. I would have thought it was Jay Happ. Happ has been so consistent for the Yankees. Uh, but they go back to the guy that was their ace last year, their ace for much of this year. Uh, but but i got to say I'm a little surprised. It, it, it's really a powerful narrative, though, for Severino. Last year, the, the really difficult start for him against the Twins. He did not even get out of the first inning in that game. Uh, we'll see. I, I'm a little surprised that Severino gets to start, but maybe it's, it's for the thought process of, of, of getting the A's lineup in there with their lefties, and then all of a sudden they bring in half early in the game to counteract that. Almost we'll see both teams bullpenning their way through the game. So surprise on Severino. I would have gone with half, but the Yankees right now healthy, they believe, with Judge and D.D. and Hicks. They've got to feel good about their chances playing at home there in the Bronx. John Morosi joining us from Dodger Stadium. John, one last question, one quick follow. I always appreciate your time. Red Sox do win 108 games. If you had to make an argument against them or maybe point to a potential weakness, what would it be? The fact that Chris Sale is now just working his way back. We have not seen him even complete five innings, Jim, in the last several weeks. And the, The velocity, according to Alex Spear in the Boston Globe, the lowest fastball velocity in his career was his final start before the playoffs. Ominous indeed. And of course, if they lose game one of that series for the Red Sox, they've got to really rely on David Price in game two. I think David's due to have a big start in the playoffs. But I think Chris Sale, a lot of pressure. And here's a team, Jim, that they have spent a lot of money here in recent years. Their farm system is not really all that uh, strong at the top levels. This is their year to win it. If they don't win it now, the next couple of years, I believe, are going to get more and more difficult in that division as the Rays with Blake Snell, the Cy Young winner, uh, ascending there. So a lot of pressure on Chris Sale and the Red Sox in game one. Hey, John, I lied. I've got one more thought. You know, there's so many guys at the MLB Network, and because you work for so many networks, but that's one of them, there's so many good, good guys at the MLB Network. John, I had a conversation with Eric Burns for our podcast last week. Yeah. Guys, is there a more interesting guy than Eric Burns? He is the most interesting man in the sports world. Jim. Next to you. The, Next to you. The, all of the all of the extreme sports that he still does on his own. Uh, he, he's very involved. And here, here is somebody in Eric Burns. I love him. He thinks not just about baseball. It's about all other things in, in life and in the world and competition and the passion he brings. Always love working with Eric. I love covering him as a player. I love the fact that when he retired from playing, he went right to, to playing beer league softball with his buddies there in, in, in the South Bay. So he's a great guy. I love Eric Burns. And uh, he brings a lot of excitement to our, to our clubhouse at MLB Network. And it's certainly every competition he is still involved in likes to model all that great behavior there for his family. So he's, just, he's a great guy. I love Eric Burns. I love Eric Burns, too, and I appreciate you saying that. He works for the MLB Network, Fox Sports, NHL Network. He is a true renaissance man and joins us from Dodger Stadium. John Morosi, my guest. John, I appreciate you. Great job, as always. Thank you very much. Jim, I love catching up. It's a great time of year, and my friend, it's great to see your name here on the board, the, the board of honor here in the Vince Scully Press Box at Dodger Stadium. The Brewers are the NL Central champs. 
Go ahead and say that again. The Milwaukee Brewers are your NL Central champs. A 55-1 to long shot at the start of the season. Five games out on Labor Day. And now, after beating the Cubs 3-1, they are your NL Central champs. Not only that, they have the home field throughout the NL playoffs. However, after what I saw yesterday at Wrigley, they may very well have home field advantage wherever they play. Because the Brew Crew rolled into Chicago and they rolled deep. That's Wrigley. Those are Brewer fans running the show in Chicago. And as was pointed out time and time again on Twitter, Brewer fans turned Wrigley into Miller Park South. They're loving every single minute of this ride, and they should be. Because that team is good. And they deserve everything that's coming their way. Manager Craig Council said it best, quote, this is the game we wanted, end quote. And it's not just the players, it's the fans. They all wanted that game. They all really, really wanted that game. They wanted that game and that title, and they wanted it in Chicago. It would have been great to win that division in Milwaukee, but even better to win it in Chicago. And I'm not even going to say that that's a case of little bro punching big bro in the mouth because it's actually disrespectful to the Brewers and their fans. They're nobody's little brother, even if the Cubs fans want to treat them that way. And they didn't just punch the Cubs in the mouth. They punched the entire National League in the face. Let's go back to the offseason for one moment. Remember that? Remember when very few teams were taking chances in the offseason? Everybody was being careful. Everybody was being cautious. Maybe because they want to stockpile their dough for the upcoming offseason when there'd be a lot of big-name free agents. Or maybe it was something else. But I know this. It was the Brewers who looked around the room and thought, if none of you have the sack to take the big swing or the chance, we will do it ourselves. And they go out and they get Christian Yelich. Did that pay off? This guy damn near won the Triple Crown. He'll probably win the MVP. So I'd say, yeah, that paid off really nicely. They also go out and they get Lorenzo Cain. How did that work? Fifth in the NL in batting. Fourth and stolen bases, I'd say yes, that worked great. So while everybody else waited to be great, the Brewers just decided we will be. They might not have had a window, so they made one. Everybody else was cautious in the offseason, and the Brewers were just busting through the wall, Kool-Aid man style. Oh, yeah. As Kane said, no one gave us anything. We just took it. Oh, yeah. And they just ripped the NL Central title, and they did it in Wrigley. Oh, yeah. You think that felt any good? Hey, Brewer fan, how'd that feel? Did that feel any good? I'd say, oh, yeah. Probably felt amazing. Because Brewer fans were making that feel a lot like their house during that game. And the Brewer players definitely made it feel like their house after the game. That was a party that went for hours and it would not stop. And now they are the NL Central champs. Oh, yeah. And they've got the makeup of a team that can make some serious noise. They've got a nasty bullpen. They've got a manager who's not afraid to use it. 
And they've got bats and clutch hitting and a fan base that is awesome. One of the most underrated fan bases, not only in baseball, but all of sports. Every time a Brewer player is on the show, they talk about how great it is to play in Milwaukee. Anytime any of them come on the show, I say, what's it like to live and work there and play there? Do you like it? And the response is always the same. Oh, yeah. Do you like playing there? Oh, yeah. Is this team good enough and deep enough to make a deep run in the postseason? Is it your year? And if it's great to play in Milwaukee, if it's great to play in Milwaukee, imagine what it would be like to win a World Series in Milwaukee. Would it be the best thing ever? You know it would. Hats off to them. Dana White, UFC president. Dana, great to have you back. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, buddy. How are you? Good, good. Dana, good to visit with you. It is Tuesday of Fight Week, Dana, for Habib McGregor, and it's a fight, Dana, obviously, that everybody's been looking forward to for a long, long time. I was just thinking about this, Dana. I can't believe how fast this thing came up. They're already here at Fight Week. How are you feeling at this point this week? I, I agree with you. It, 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 you know, we, we announced it relatively late for, for a fight this big, and, uh, yeah, it, it crept up on us quick. You know, just a couple weeks ago, we did the press conference, um, which was mind-boggling. This, Jim, this thing's blowing away Maymac numbers. We put up, we have a show called UFC Embedded where we follow the fighters around. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's short and it's, it's, it's on social media. And the thing did, in five hours yesterday, 1.3 million views. Mm. When we did a Maymac one, the first Maymac, Mayweather versus McGregor one that we did, it, was, uh, it did 800,000 in 24 hours. So the numbers are off the charts for this fight. It's going to be the biggest fight we've ever done. See, I was just going to say, Dana, these are really, really big numbers, and I'm not looking for any great proclamation, but when I'm looking at this thing, I was going to say, not only does it seem like it's very clearly the biggest fight in the history of that division, might this be the biggest fight in the history of your company? Yeah, yeah, I know, and it's one of the biggest fights ever in combat sports. When we did the press conference with Habib and Connor in New York City, uh, the, the, the highest performing Mayweather versus McGregor uh, press conference we did was the one that we did in London. And over the last year, it did uh, 4.7 million views. This thing's already at 4.5 million views from two weeks ago. Dana White joining us. And Dan, I think that obviously fight fans know exactly what they're going to get. They're already locked in. When you look at those crossover fight fans that aren't exactly sure whether or not they're going to get down or they're going to buy in, they know what they get in Conor McGregor, but they may not know about Habib. For those who have not spent time with him or spoken with him, how would you describe him and what's he like outside of the cage? Yeah, no, well, this guy's an, an absolute beast. Uh, uh, think about this. It's very, very hard to go undefeated in this sport. And he's 26-0. and 26-0, and, and he's actually never even lost a round since he's been in the UFC. Completely dominates people. And uh, that, that's why this fight is so big, you know. If you're a fight fan, you have two of the very best in the world. One guy's undefeated. And they're, they're fighting in their prime when they should be fighting. This is not only a dream uh, matchup for a guy like me, but for, for fight fans all over the world. Dana White joining us. That fight's coming up this weekend. Obviously, Dana, you know this as well as anybody. Styles make fights. These guys have very different styles. When you look at the stats of the fight, Habib is great at striking defense, and he's a monster when it comes to ground striking. What kind of a fight are you expecting to see? Yeah, this is one of those typical fights where Connor wants to keep this on his feet and try to knock Habib out, and Habib's going to try to take this to the ground and, 
he, he smashes people. When he gets them down, they don't get back up. Hey, Dan, it's something really interesting, I thought. There was an interview recently where Habib talked about the bus incident and said, quote, before the media day, the UFC came to me and said, hey, you're going to go to media day alone when before I could go with all my brothers. So I think, why do I have to go alone? So I come alone. And then what happened? I think maybe the UFC made this too. End quote. I mean, in essence, Danny, he's suggesting that the UFC may have had a role in that bus attack. You've heard that. What was your reaction when you first heard that? Well, there, there, there was a lot of people that were speculating that, uh, you know, we might have had something. Yeah, we're going to take our biggest star in the sport, which actually at the time we were talking about not only getting a new deal done with Connor, but Connor actually fighting in Brazil at that time. So we're going to take our biggest star. Jeff, first of all, Connor can't fight in New York now. We did an $18 million gate in New York. New York won't have him fight in New York now. We're going to do all that and risk that for what? What would be the purpose? Because if you even came up with something that ridiculous, who's to say that it would play out this way? Who'd to say that Connor wouldn't do any jail time? Or, you know, what else could have happened? Other commissions wouldn't have allowed him to possibly fight like New York won't. So believe me, that's, it, it, it's very, very far-fetched. But fighters are, are very, uh, you know, they think the world is against them. Hey, Dana, what would you have said if you were in a meeting and then somebody said, hey, Dana, I've got an idea. Why don't we get Connor and his crew and then Connor can get a barricade and he can run it through the bus? What do you think of that idea, boss? What would you have said? Yeah, yeah that, that sounds like a great idea. So the other thing is, is, is Habib, what Habib forgets is that him and his crew had surrounded Artem, Connor's friend, and Habib slapped him in the face. That's how this whole thing got started. So, you know, people, people forget that this started with Habib. It didn't start with Connor. And for Habib to say that, the reason him and his whole crew weren't there is because they just slapped Artem the day before. And little did we know that Connor loaded a plane, a private plane full of uh, his buddies and was on his way to New York for that reason. You know, we, we didn't know that. Of course, we had no idea. I can help the listeners decode this. These guys don't like each other. They don't like each other at all, and they're going to get in the cage on Saturday. And then, Dana, what about Connor? You and I have talked so many times about Connor over the past year. He doesn't need this fight. He really doesn't need any fight, I would imagine. Why is he doing this fight then? It's what makes him the, 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 not only the biggest star in, in fighting, but one of the biggest stars in sports. You know, he, he's one of the best in the world. He's got tons of money, and you know, he goes right after the best. He goes after the best in the world. He'll fight anybody. If, if, if something happened this week and Habib fell out, he'd fight whoever was next in line. This is what people love about Conor McGregor. He's, he, you know, being rich and, and famous and all the things that come along with it hasn't changed him as a fighter. And people see that, they respect it, and they love it. UFC 229 coming up this weekend. Habib McGregor Saturday live from Vegas, only on pay-per-view. UFC President Dana White joining us for a few more moments. You know, Dana, anyone who knows, and this is well documented, Conor has not been in the cage for nearly two years now. He and his team would tell you that he's been training the entire time, so therefore there's no cage rust. Do you expect that to be possible? I mean, is it possible not to have a fight for two years and not have some rust to knock off? I'm always a believer in rust. Um, so, yes, I, I, I think that... that there, there will be rust. Uh, it's impossible not to. Um, in every way, shape, and form, this is a dangerous fight for Conor McGregor. It, it's the first time in a while that Conor's been an underdog. Um, so, so, yeah. But, but it's, again, it's the reason people love Conor. And, uh, you know, he comes right out after two years. You know, a lot of people would come out and want an easier fight. He goes right after the biggest, baddest monster in the sport right now.
Say another reason I love this guy. When they got together at a presser, Connor told you that he wanted to get as close as possible, but he wasn't going to touch him. And then he told Habib, and I quote, you're dead. You're dead. I can see blue lips, end quote. <laughs> Danny, you've been around a lot of these guys. You've been around all these guys. How would you describe the vibe and the tension between the two of them in that very moment? Yeah, it's, it's, it's intense. And a lot of people were telling me it's like the first time they've ever seen me look really nervous up there. I, I, I was so nervous that something was going to explode. And we did all the right things. We didn't even let fans in. We only let their managers come into the room, no, none, of their, none of their entourage. And, you know, I was just trying to do everything right to make sure that nothing happened uh, at that press conference in New York. And there were a few moments uh, th- that I thought they would. But Connor is the absolute best of all time at the mental warfare game. He gets in people's heads. You could tell right away Habib said, I'm not going to play this game with this guy. I expected this. And then five minutes later, he's screaming and yelling back at Connor. You know, Connor's the best at getting you out of your mental game. Hey, Dan, and one more thought. Daniel Cormier, I'm changing topics on you. Cormier said that he expects to be stripped of his 205-pound belt and that he really does not like the idea of John Jones getting a shot at it. How do you see that whole thing playing out? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to play out yet. And obviously, you know, Daniel Cormier is the ultimate good guy. I mean, this guy has done everything right that you could do his entire career. He's amazing. And, you know, he hates John Jones so bad that he, he, he hates to see this guy keep getting opportunities. It, it drives him nuts. But I told him to relax, sit back, and let's see how all this stuff plays out. John Jones isn't even in shape. He's, he, he hasn't fought in a long time. He's fought, you know, what, once in the last two years or something? So relax. Let's see how this thing plays out. And, you know, you're the champion. You're the champ champ. You're the double champ. Don't worry about it. Stop, stop worrying about what's going on with him. Um, everything's going to work out fine for you. UFC 229, Habib and McGregor Saturday night. Once again, live in Las Vegas, but only on pay-per-view. UFC President Dana White joining us the week of the fight. Dana, great to have you on. Always appreciate you very much. Have a great weekend with that. Likewise. You too, Rome. Argel in Louisiana. Argel, good morning. How are you? Hey, Jim. It's pronounced Argel. It's French. Ah. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Speaking of Wisco, let's go to Green Bay. Bobby in Green Bay. Good to have you, Bobby. How uh, are you? Rome, it's actually pronounced Bobby. Mm, my bad. Sorry, bro. Ah. No, man. He's being no. funny. You're fine. You don't like I'm going to overrule that, Alvin. Call. Hey, John, in Illinois. Hey, John. Good to have you. John, what's up? How are you? Hey, what's up? Hey, guess who the sheriff is of my town? Who do you got? Howard Buffett, Warren Buffett's son. That's pretty awesome. That's awesome. But yeah. guess what? Cubs versus Rockies, Sun Tzu. The game, the battle is won before the game, or the battle is fought. You know how we're going to win it? How? We got an FBI agent in the dugout. He's got contraband, doobies, game's over. Hmm. All right, so I'm two for two on questions. You got any more? Then we move to this. We go to Boston. Right. It's Wahlburgers versus Crackleburgers. Right. Ah. That's not a good call. No. Alvin. I don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Good night now! How does one frame a masterpiece? If it's a painting, some wood and gold leaf will do. But what about a masterpiece of the edible variety? Like Boar's Head Oven Gold Turkey. Crafted from a family recipe, seasoned with savory spices, and then slow roasted until it's fork tender and brimming with flavor. 
So, what could frame such a masterpiece? Perhaps a little bread would do. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. <laughs>